All right. Chad's already introduced me. I appreciate that because he's also introduced uh, the topic, Third John. And indeed, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time with John's writings. In fact, if you're a professor, you're going to be narrowed in the area. So I'm a New Testament professor. Well, that's not enough. They're going to narrow you, narrow you down even more. So what part of the New Testament are you supposed to emphasize? Well, I emphasize Johannine studies. So I indeed, I get a good kick out of John, the gospel, and the book of Revelation and his letters. But uh, I've mentioned to Chad also, I have never preached from 3 John. Now, I've preached plenty from the other books, but not from 3 John. You can probably figure it out right away because it's uh, 219 Greek words total. It's the shortest book of the Bible. There are plenty of things to preach on. You can save that to the end. Well, guess what? Uh, would you preach on 3 John? Okay, so it gives me an opportunity to actually study and work on what I've been doing for a long, long time. So I'll read. I can do this. We can read the entire letter and we'll do that here this morning. But I'll start with this story. I like to start with a story to make sure we're on the same page. Um, I grew up, loved sports, still do, baseball big time, but also football and basketball and the rest. You mentioned basketball already. And uh, uh, some of you know, one of my, my dad's favorite coach was Auburn University coach Suge Jordan years ago, like 50s, 60s, and 70s. Why my dad liked Auburn, I don't know, because we lived on the other side of the country, but he just loved that coach. Well, I remember finding a story on Suge Jordan. He had several of his ball players went on to the big-time NFL. One of them was by the name of Mike Collin, who became a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins for several years. So one of the things that Suge Jordan did was to ask his, uh, you know, his guys that went on to a success to help be recruiter. He contacted Mike once and said, Mike, you know, I'd like to recruit in your area. Sure, coach. Uh, you bet. I'm happy to help out you, my coach, and the alma mater. So what are we looking for? So Jordan said, well, Mike, you know, uh, you know that ball player that when you, you hit him, you knock him down, he stays down? Yeah, coach, I know about that. We don't want that guy, right? No, we don't want to recruit that kind of guy. And you know, Mike, the kind of guy that when you knock him down, he gets back up, but when you knock him down again, he stays down? Yeah, coach, I know about that ball player. We don't want him either, right? No, we don't want that guy either. And, Mike, you know the ball player that when you knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down again, he gets back up. You keep knocking him down, but he keeps getting back up. And Mike says, yeah, I know that ball player. That's the guy we want, right, coach? No, we don't want him either. We want the guy who keeps knocking everybody down. That's who we want for our team. Well, you know, the church is a lot like that. Unfortunately, truthfully, uh, there are those who knock others down. We are imperfect beings. We are with the Lord, but we also are human. And sometimes we're the ones that get knocked down. And we're the ones that when we get knocked down, well, that's it. We're out of here. I'm gone. Or I'll get back up once and you do it another time and I'm out of here. And there are some of us who feel like we get knocked down all the time. And we're still trying, but we're still struggling as well. Those compose the church. And whatever church you end up with and wherever church you come, there are going to be those kinds of personalities and those kinds of attitudes in the church. So here's my point already. I mean, get used to it because it's going to, no matter what happens, we're going to be having those kinds of attitudes around us. We have here in Third John a little snapshot of early Christianity where those kinds of attitudes and people are found in this tiny little letter that's found in the very back of our Bibles, which seem to have no relevancy for today, yet indeed highly relevant because those are the kind of people that John had to fight and deal with, so too we in God's church today. So yes, highly relevant story. 
And we're going to take a look at this. And I have di- I've divided it into the tale of four people because there are four names actually mentioned in these few verses. John, the elder, and we'll look at the other one. We'll get him first. And I put a C in front of him so I can help remember myself. So let's talk, first of all, and this won't take very long, let's talk about the confession of John. Now, John's name not mentioned, but you know perhaps from previous messages that he's the elder. And that very first verse of Third John, the elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. The elder is John. The internal evidence, this is the kind of thing that John would write, this kind of letter. The external evidence, the transmission process of how we got our Bible, all points to one person, and most people agree that this is none other than John. John the Apostle, one of the twelve, son of thunder, brother of James, writer of five of our New Testament books. So it's him. But the confession precisely is he makes, uh, he says some things about this fellow named Gaius. So the confession precisely is he's going to confirm him. So let's go ahead and take a look then at Gaius. So I already have my second of four points. They do not go this fast. This one goes a little slower. So let's look second of all at the confirmation of Gaius, and that's verses 2 through 8. So I'll read it from my NIV, and then we'll come back, and I'll pick on a couple of these um, points along the way. Dear friend, John writes in verse 2, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God it was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans we ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that that we may work together for the truth several things come out of these few verses and they all deal with Gaius and I'll give you some characteristics then but the first thing I notice Right away is there, there back in verse number two. This is like the, in the first 11 Greek words, you see that love word coming out, agape and its cognates. To my dear friend, agape tas, Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, there it is again, I pray. So three times John loves this man. He is, Gaius is John's son in the faith. So his love really shows through, and you see it in the very first couple words. And also in verse number two, I take note that he says, I hope that your physical health is as good as your spiritual health, which is totally opposite of what we think about today. We want to make sure we feel good, look good, we are good. Oh, and by the way, I go to church too, so I must you know, think good, and hopefully my spirit is good. That's the opposite standard of the Bible. Here's a good example. John doesn't really care. Well, he does. He cares for the physical health of his friend Gaius, but that's secondary to his spiritual health, his soul health, if you will. The flip-flop of a standard, and that shows through. But there are several characteristics come through that give us an idea of the kind of person that Gaius is here. So let me start to list some of those. First of all, in verse number three, you can see that Gaius has a good reputation. People came to John the Elder, and they said, 
That Gaius that you know, he's a good guy. He has got a great character, a good Christian truth. He has a good reputation. And I could, you know, we'll go quickly on here, but I would say, again, before we get too far, the value of a good reputation. I mean, some of us personally know that if you kind of get a bad reputation, it is very hard to overcome. Just this past uh, two weeks ago, I noticed that a church in Richmond, Virginia, I think it's called Outreach Center. I don't want to just plug it as much to say what happened. But not one, but four of their staff, including the senior pastor, had to resign the church. Or they did resign, probably on their own volition. Why? Because it was found out that all four of them had past criminal activities. Now, you read the rest of the story, you find out that they got saved, they got, you know, shouldn't hold your sins against them, Colossians 2.13, and they began to start a ministry together, yet somebody uncovered something and perhaps one of them, and the next thing you know, all four had to resign the church. Not because of what they were doing right now, they no doubt were leading out, but their reputation caught up with them. The value of a good reputation, once you get it, people trust you no matter what. Once you get a bad reputation, it is very hard to overcome. So this fellow, though, has a good reputation. So let's keep going. Notice also that Gaius, in verse number 3, the last little segment there, Gaius walks in the truth. And from the other letters perhaps you've been reading, that word truth is one of John's favorite ways of talking about the truth of the gospel message. For him, the truth is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ buried and raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. That's the truth, and that's the true message. Several times in these verses you notice that Gaius is mentioned, that he is walking in the truth. He is in the truth. And this is not an adverb. It's not like, oh, he's truly a good person. No, he is in the truth. This is a theological statement of his orthodox, his orthodoxy. And in his era, when people began to infiltrate the church with uh, Jesus plus some other things, it was called Gnosticism, which became full-blown in the next century. He, Gaius, is an example of one who stands up for the orthodox truth. Another characteristic, Gaius gives John great joy upon hearing of his faithfulness. So notice this, when you see someone growing up in the church and you start to see them grow, oh, you may not notice it yourself because you're the one growing, but it gives joy to the other believers, the other spiritual family. Gaius is John's spiritual child. Gaius is, uh, he is mentoring him. And it gives John joy to see how much he's grown. Just, just, think, just think of your own family. I have three daughters. And um, to see them grow and to accept Christ and then become mature and then now... Uh, as of this past year, all three are now married to fine Christian men. And not only that, but I know, and I know you cannot tell us, but uh, I can't have grandchildren, but I do. Now I see that their children have the opportunity to grow in an environment where both parents are believers and they have every opportunity to see what it means to live out the Christian life. Many of us have never had that opportunity, but I can see in my three daughters, my grandchildren's opportunity to, to do that. That gives me great joy. My wife and myself, we just think what a great family that they're building themselves. The same is true of the spiritual family up here. When we see others grow, it gives the rest of us joy. That's what's happening in Gaius's and John's life. Notice as well. 
Gaius was hospitable toward everyone there. Verse number five in the first part of chapter six, uh, verse number six, rather. Closely look. These are strangers. He doesn't know who they are. But John says, I've heard that you bring these strangers in and are hospitable to them. They are believers in Christ, but you don't know them, but you're bringing them in. You show warmth and generosity and friendship, and you're helping them along the way. And now we're getting to the heart of the letter here in just a second. But right here, Gaius shows hospitality toward other Christians, even though he doesn't know them. And maybe even though he doesn't necessarily agree with everything they believe in. And what another statement for today. We have so much in common. We have 95% in common. And the 5% that we disagree on is usually over. It's not an orthodoxy, at least not in evangelical churches. It's over preferences. It's over choices. It's over options. It's over variety. It's over, this is how I like to do worship. This is how I like to see that. This is how I want to do that way. And I disagree. And we'll exclude them. We'll kick them out. Or they'll leave. And we're arguing over the 5% when we have so much in common. Take note of Gaius as an example. Gaius doesn't know them. He knows they have other issues and preferences. Yet he is hospitable toward strangers. But not real strangers because they know Jesus too. If someone knows Jesus... They're a friend, no matter they have different viewpoints on different issues. And then, also another characteristic. Gaius was encouraged by John to continue supporting these itinerant gospel preachers or missionaries. That was basically what the letter is about there in verses 6, 7, and 8. Sociological experts remind us that in the first century, when people would go to a new town, if you didn't know anybody, you were a true stranger and no one would take you in. The inns or the hotels of the day were were very notoriously uncivil. You needed to know somebody unless, especially if you're family, you want to go to that hotel because they would maybe put you on a stable, you know, from another story you might remember. I mean, it's very difficult. Uh, sociological experts also remind us that in this era and this time that when someone would come to town someone had to make the extra effort to reach out to them and make them a friend so they became the patron and they would bring the stranger into the town and then the town would accept them because that person now has a patron now think about this just for a moment that's how the gospel message was produced and spread in the first century strangers like Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries, the book of Acts, they would go from town to town. They didn't know anybody. If there was someone there after a while that was a believer, that was the person you try to connect with, and that person responsibly should take that Christian in and help them, guide them, take care of them, and send them on their way for the gospel message. The point here is that some were doing that, like Gaius, and some were not. The importance of the gospel message is spread is because people like Gaius would say, yes, I don't know who you are, but you know Jesus, come. I'll take care of you and give you what you need and send you on your way. They were in the name of Jesus. Notice that down there in verse number uh, 8, uh, or it's verse number 7. They were in the name of Jesus. That little phrase is found five times in the Bible. Once here. The other four times, it is in the context of persecution. In the name of Jesus, someone's being persecuted. The same is taking place right here. 
these men and women missionaries were being persecuted in the name of Jesus. Gaius and those like him were saying, we'll help you along the way. Now, applications abound. You can talk about the missionary programs and things you can give to, but that's similar to that. But the point is, is even though they may, we may disagree with some things, they are believers who are getting the message of the gospel out. We must support them, even though they don't look, sound, act, or in some cases, believe exactly the way that I do. So there you go. John confirms Gaius in this tiny letter. He does all the right things, especially supporting those that don't know him as a stranger. And uh, that's great. And, but alas, there are other kinds of people in the church as well. And let's go ahead and take a look at one of those. So in the next person, it's the third person, it's the condemnation of Diotrephes. So Diotrephes is introduced in verse number 9 and 10, and let's go ahead and read those verses right there. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So, John says, if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing gossiping maliciously about us. And not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. And I'll go ahead and read the next verse too because it also applies to him, although it's a transition verse. Dear friend, John says, Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. This Diotrephes character is found only in these few sentences in the New Testament. Yet in these very few sentences, he is one of the truly bad guys in all the Bible. You can think of some others along the way, and most of them are not even Christians. But this person is a believer. Not only that, he is a leader of the church. He is an influence in the church. He makes things happen. It's that kind of person that John calls out. And that's the reason he receives a rich condemnation from the Apostle John. Let me list several things about this fellow. First of all, notice that he's a self-promoter. Loves to be first. Strove to be first. The NIV's loves to be first is just one Greek word. Takes several English words to get it out. So loves to be first. The uh, New King James Version says loves to have the preeminence. The New American Bible says loves to dominate. It's a, some, it's a personality who wants to be in charge, who wants to exercise authority, who wants to have power over other people, wants to be the leader, wants to be the one that, you know, and with that comes arrogance, with that comes ambition, all the things that a Christian leader should not be known for. That's this kind of person. Also, notice that he is insubordinate. He would not receive the authority of John, that letter that was written. He either disobeyed it, uh, didn't even take note of it, or more likely just refused to abide by it. So here is a letter from the apostle John himself, who walked with Jesus Christ. Yet, I don't care, I don't care, I'm... Uh, he sees Gaius and John not as team members, but as rivals, rivals of the gospel. In some kind of way, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to undercut those fellows. Another characteristic of this person is that he's slanderous. He spoke nonsense and gossip and slandered behind John's back. 
Um, my NIV again says gossips, and the new NIV, the 2011, says he speaks nonsense. The Greek word plurao has a lot of meat to it. It includes ideas of gossiping, nonsense, maliciousness, all those things where you may say something behind someone's back, and oh, it may have half truth to it, but you know it's for a reason. It brings down somebody else. That's the kind of person that we have here, slanderous personality. And finally, on this person, he is also vindictive. He would not, he would not receive fellow believers, kind of like what Gaius was doing, where they were strangers, but he took them in, helped them along the way. Instead, Diotrephes said, no, I'm not taking you in. In fact, who's taking them in? You? All right, I'm kicking you out of church too. Whoever's helping these missionaries sent from John, let me know who they are, and I'll take care of them. He excludes them from the group. He excludes them from the Christian community. Now, come on now for a second. Who would ever do this today? Can you imagine a Christian leader who has influence over church that would act this way? A self-promoter? Someone who is like, you know, a personality that hates, he's vain, he's arrogant, he's self-absorbed, he's insubordinate, he slanders, he whispers it behind people's back, he's vindictive, he's vengeful. To see other people fall, surely not a church member, surely not a leader of a church, surely not in America in 2013, surely, well, the sad truth is, there are too many diatrophies out there. I bear the tragic news from the trenches, my friend. I am aware at any time of a couple dozen churches in the Northwest. The reason is because they come to school. They tell what's happening in the churches. They tell what's happening in their personal lives. They tell what happened. And the faculty and staff and others who are asked to pray for the situation, and I'm telling you right now that things are not that great in God's world in America. There's in a, a church that's small particularly, there's always maybe one attitude that's out there that will help bring down or put down a ministry that's taking place. So unfortunately, the truth of the reality is this little letter is highly relevant because Diotrephes is alive and well in the modern church. One example. Two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a graduate of Golden Gate Seminary. He just got fired from his church in Alabama. And um, he was just letting me know, thanks for prayers, updates, all this kind of thing. And uh, the reason he was fired, nothing unethical, nothing immoral, he was not fired by biblical standards. He was fired according to, and I quote from him right off the phone, my vision was too big for the church. His vision was too big for the church, and so they had to let him go, they said. They let him go. Now, the tragedy of this would be that uh, to let you know that this is not the first time it happened to this young man. Well, he's 40, so he's young to me. This is not the first time it happened to him. This was not the second. This was the third time that he had been fired in about the last 10 years. Now, if that's all you knew about the situation I'm telling you, then you would say probably what I would say if that's all I knew. Like, oh, there's something wrong with him, right? How can you be fired from a church three different times in three different locations, three different states in the union? There's no way. There's something wrong with him. He did not really receive the call of God. He did not really understand what he's supposed to do. He was not really. But see, that's not true because I know him and I know his family. And I know for a fact that he's been led by God. The second church that he was fired from tripled in attendance. 
And then it was found out that uh, his end-time views uh, were different than a major contributor to the church. Now, there's only one end-time view. That is, Jesus Christ is coming back bodily. We know that. But there are five legitimate, viable Christian views about how that might come about. So we love to discuss and argue over which of those five is the best. And, oh, I like parts of yours, but you don't like part of mine. And we can discuss it over a theological cup of coffee, maybe. But not this particular church. There was only one viewpoint, and he espoused another one. So when the people found out, three years in, after tripling church attendance, they let him go. He just didn't get on the same page with the major people of the church. So you see, I know the situation And those kinds of activities, unfortunately, are taking place in God's church. Yes, Diotrephes is alive and well. And I pray that he will never be a part of this church and never be a part of churches that are local that I'm aware of. But unfortunately, like I said, I can think of some examples. Well, let's get past this guy, okay? Let's talk about the fourth person, and that's Demetrius. And I give the C word for him, commendation. John, the apostle, gives a rich, personal, powerful endorsement of somebody that Gaius should look up to. Gaius, let me give you some examples out there. Take a look at Demetrius. So let's take a look at him. Verse number 11 again and verse number 12. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius. Now he's going to give us a good example. He just gave us a bad one with Diotrephes. Demetrius is well spoken by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. In these few short sentences, all we know of this fellow named Demetrius is this and he is a good guy. He is like Gaius. In fact, He is so good that Gaius is supposed to imitate him. Demetrius then becomes a model, an example, a a mentor model, a pattern, if you will, of what it's like to live the Christian life. John looks and says, we need to find good models in the church. There's one right there. Gaius, if you do what he does, live like he does, you're on the right pathway. There's one word that comes out for Demetrius several times here. And that's the word matereo, which means a good witness or testimony. He is given a good testimony by three different groups of people. Number one, he is given a good testimony from everyone. Everyone who comes in contact with Demetrius is saying, now that is what a Christian is like, or what a Christian should be like, right there. Everyone likes Demetrius. Second, from the truth itself. When you think about the truth, the gospel message, the truth of Christ, You think of Demetrius, according to this letter. By the truth itself, when you read the Bible, Demetrius lines up with that. He follows what the Bible says. One Bible commentator said it this way. Demetrius lived according to the mandates of God's word so that his life showed clear evidence of the truth. What a great model to aspire to. And then third, He also received a good testimony from none other than John himself and the apostles when John says we. So as John and the other apostles who walked with Christ are looking for models to admire and to to use as admonishment, they think about Demetrius. Here's the kind of person we should have. 
Gaius has in front of him Diotrephes and Demetrius. He has to choose one as a model. I mean, it's natural that we kind of look at models around us. We don't have the physical Christ with us. He's given us the spirit, but we innately look to others as models. And Demetrius is one to follow where he makes others look good. He's not like a selfish, self-absorbed, I'm going to be first, but instead everyone else gets to be first. And an example is this. On March the 16th, 2007, a 1 in a 25 million chance occurred. On the game show Jeopardy, and you got to watch that. It's a great show. You know, every once in a while you get one of them right, you know. And what is cool is when you get it right and they don't get one right. So that's usually on baseball and the New Testament. When they have those columns, I do pretty good on those. But everything else, it's zilch. But on this particular game, this particular date, uh, they got to final Jeopardy. On the final Jeopardy, they give their final uh, bids, and then they get the question, and then whoever gets the most money, whether they win or lose, is at that point. So there's a fellow by the name of Scott Weiss. And the second and third place players had exactly $8,000 each in going into final Jeopardy. Scott Weiss had over 12000 So, you know, he knows he needs to bid more, but he did the calculation. And he calculated that if both of those players doubled their money, he knows what he would have to bid to make it a three-way tie. And that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what happened. All three got the question right. All three had exactly $16,000. First time it's ever happened, perhaps the only time it's ever happened, and all three now are winners, not just one person. Essentially, Scott Wise forfeited his victory. He had the lead. He just needed to bid more. He forfeited himself so that others could win. Now that is an example of a Demetrius-like personality. Not to get the headship, not to be out in front, not to get it all about me, but it's about everybody else. It's letting others win with you. Teamwork instead of coming into first place. That's the kind of person that Demetrius was. So let me conclude. And the conclusion is found in verses 13 and 14. And you might have a Bible translation that even has a verse 15. No, they didn't take any words out of the Bible. It's just one of those transmission oddities through the centuries where the number 15 got into some uh, early English Bible translations beginning in the 1500s. So uh, my NIV doesn't have a verse 15, but yours may. But all the words are there. So let me read them. Verse 13, I have much to write you, John says to guys, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. And there you have it. One twenty-seventh of the New Testament you've read this morning with me. So 26 more to go. You can do it. You know, work it out, keep working, start small, go big. Uh, I encourage you to do it. You can do it. But let's go ahead and finish off this particular one right here. We have little pencil portraits, if you will, of four people. We know a lot about John, so I went past him pretty quickly. But these other three you may not have ever known about. Indeed, they're only found here in all the Bible. But you kind of figured them out a little bit of where they're coming from and what they're like and how we should maybe treat them today. So let me make three quick statements. Number one is this. Statements of application. Christians are not always what they should be. Well, duh, I could have done that one myself. But is it not true? We are not where we should be. We have goals. We have uh, models like our Lord himself. But we're also human and we're frail and we're going to sin. We're not what we should be. But here's the point I would make out of that. 
since we are not, would you allow someone else's less than stellar performance, less than stellar Christian walk, would you allow them, when they knock you down, when they knock you down, will you stay down? Oh, well, I'll give them one more chance. And then they do it again to you. Are you gone then? Or is that for that relationship? And even if you get knocked down several times, will you allow someone else's imperfection, someone else's criticism, competition, gossip, whatever, would you allow it to affect your service for the Lord? Would you allow it to affect your walk with Him? Would you allow it to affect your relationships with other people in the church because so-and-so said this or so-and-so did that? Would you allow them to keep you knocked down? Something else by way of application. Christians often allow the spirit of Diotrephes to influence the church. Even today, like I said, there are Diotrephes-like characteristics found around here or there. I mentioned that I sometimes maybe get the worst of it because often when I come to school, when they come to school with their prayer requests, it's because things are going badly, not necessarily always because they're going well. Diotrephes, however, was an influential man. He was successful partly because people allowed him to be successful. They allowed him to dominate the situation. Or they allowed him and would not stand up for the truth. Or would not stand behind those who tried to stand up for the truth against a Diotrephes character. So somewhere along the line, either because of fear of conflict, perhaps it was cowardice, perhaps whatever reasons, it was the people who perhaps allowed the Diotrephes character and attitude to continue. Let me give you an example here. I always find good examples because they happen because all I do is read the Internet and watch what comes my way. I got churchleaders.com emailed to me this past week, and they show videos, you know, YouTube videos sometimes, and they actually showed or had a, click, a, a link to a video of a pastor who just went off on his congregation and said, you know, shows, I forget the title of it, pastor goes off on congregation. And so, you know, I thought, well, I wonder what that's about, because curious minds want to know. I'm in the checkout stand. I see the inquire. I, you know, I, what's going on there? So I clicked on there, and sure enough, there was this pastor from Skytook, Oklahoma, who uh, was preaching, and somebody was falling asleep. Oh, he went off on him. You know, you better listen to him. And then uh, someone must have smiled. So he went down off the pulpit area and went down and started chastising a young man, told him to stand up. Gave him a funny look and like, oh, we're brothers, right? And well, I don't know if I'm his brother or not, the way he's t- treating me. And then he talked about his uh, wife-to-be. They were going to get married. And he then chastised them, saying, I don't know if I want to marry you guys, you know, because you guys are not uh, treating me the right way as your leader. You're not submitting to me. And then he went off with someone on this side over here. He was on a roll. He was in five to seven minutes on this. And he ended with a chastising the sound guy, saying, have you got this on? You got this on? You know? And uh, he said, and then you're, and he told the young man, you're just, ha- you have your own little kingdom back there, don't you? Well, you're not submitting to me, and just, I was, it was jaw-droppingly, amazingly, I have never seen or experienced anything like that. I saw that, I said, these are not actors, this is the real deal. This guy is chastising his church, and I just, I just had to find out more. So I got on that, I said, I got to find out about this church in Skytook, and I just went on. And uh, I kept trying and trying and trying, 
and I never could get on to the link of the church. And the reasons, perhaps one of two reasons. One, there's a lot of other people like me saying, I want to find out about the church, and it may, may be overloaded. Or hopefully, and this is what I prayerfully hope, is that maybe because this got away and got out there, that people said, okay, it's time to stand up to this kind of diatrophies-like character, and maybe is being addressed right now, even as we speak, and that church maybe is turning a, uh, turning a page and getting on right. I'm not calling anyone out to say, oh, yeah, I'll fire that guy. But if that's the kind of diatrophies-like character that's there, some people need to stand up to that. That's my example there. And then the third one's this. Christians often imitate other Christians. It's natural and it's innate within us. We look to see what it's like. Well, what's a Christian supposed to look like, act like, dress like, and all that? We just naturally do that. It's a part of the human experience. So the point here, of course, is who are your imitators? Who are the ones that you would choose and say, I want to be kind of like that person? They make the right decisions. They always seem to have the right spirit. They are doing the right things. And indeed, then who are the ones that are looking to you? And if they look at you, are they doing a good imitation of Christ and a good model to follow? So Gaius had them both in front of him. He could choose one or the other. As verse number 11 says, he can choose the good one or he could choose the evil one because they both were in the church. Prayerfully, God, uh, Gaius chose the right one. But we would have the same thing happen to us today. I wonder if John wrote a letter today and our names were in it. <laughs> I wonder what character we might portray and what our name would stand for. So let's take that story at the beginning and let's end with it. There are people in the church that unfortunately all over will sometimes be ones who knock other people down. And maybe this will give you an insight to say, you know, if they knock me down, I know it's not them. It's the, their attitude and they're not following Christ. I'm going to follow Christ and I'm going to stand strong. That's good. But let's do what Coach Jordan said to do. Let's be the one who knocks those down. So we've got to reverse it a little bit though, right? So if you see Anger or hatred, knock it down. It doesn't belong in the church. If you see verbal abuse, like that example I gave at churchleaders.com, if you see backbiting and gossiping and slandering, knock it down. It'll get back up, won't it? Oh, it'll get back up again in a different form, different venue. Knock it down again. It'll keep coming back up, though, won't it? Keep knocking it down. If you see competition and backbiting and self-promotion, knock it down unkindness and meanness and vengefulness and vindictiveness. Knock it down. When it comes back up, be ready to knock it down again. None of that forceful like, don't ever come to our church, but instead replace it. Knock it down with generosity and love. No, no, we don't. Let's, let's just stop right there. We don't do that. Instead, love, generosity, graciousness. Uh, you want to be first? Well, you know what? Let's all be first generosity, graciousness, everyone's a winner, teamwork, and a good reputation so that you and your church become examples of what a church that John would love to write to is like. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for an opportunity to see this little slice of life, this little snapshot into the early church, and recognize that, oh, we are exactly the same as they are. We are so, so like them. Nothing's changed. 
The same spirits and personalities and characteristics abound today. Lord, I pray that this little letter will take hold of all of us and that we would generate and move toward that person that we perhaps are most like and find ways to strengthen that with the help of our Lord Jesus and also help those and be ready to help those who may have foibles and failures. May we be the one to be their model to help them along the way. Bless this church as they model people like Demetrius and Gaius and the Apostle John. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.